Good afternoon. This is the session they usually give me at Bible school <laughs> with the responsibility to keep everybody awake. I want you to turn to that song they just sang, number six. Sometime you can look at Psalm 104, which is uh, the psalm from which it is taken. But look at the language here. Verse 2, O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. That's, that's really graphic. And this one's even more so. Thy bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air. It's the air we breathe. It shines in the light. It's the light we uh, take for granted. It streams from the hills, the rivers, descends to the plain, and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. It just, that, that is such a, it's always been a great favorite of mine. Now, I would like for you to turn to Psalm 141. Song, song, uh, song 141 in the hymnal. Did I say psalm? Now you notice this is a low mason song, very typical of the simplicity and yet the exquisite beauty of his music. Uh, do you know this one? How many know it? Just a couple of you. I like the last verse, thy children shall not faint nor fear, sustained by this delightful thought. What is it? Since thou their God art everywhere, they cannot be where thou art not. Let's sing this song. Though Father and friend, thy light, thy love, beaming through all thy works we see, thy glory gilds the heavens above. pure for mortal sight involved in clouds invisible as the Lord of life and light we know not Hallowed part of the wide heavens, thy throne may be, but this we know that where thou art, strength, wisdom, goodness dwell. With thee, thy children shall not faint nor fear, sustained by this delightful thought. 
Since thou their God art everywhere, they cannot be where thou art not. I want you to notice underneath the title, you have the tune name, Illa, and then after that you have LM, which stands for long meter. And all that means is that the uh, syllables in those lines is eight in the first uh, part of the line, first phrase, and then eight, and then eight, and then eight. Father, Father and friend, thy light, thy love, beameth, beams through all thy works, wait a minute, beaming through all thy works we see, Thy glory gilds the heavens above, and all the earth is full of thee. That's all that means, long meter. And then we have common meter, and it's just what it says. Most uh, songs used to be written in this meter, 8686. Eight, and then we have short meter, 6686, six, which is my favorite meter. But anyway, I put all that up there to say this. All of the hymns written before the 1700s were written in those meters. All of Isaac Watts' hymns are written in common meter, long meter, and short meter. And what does that mean? That means if we're going to go for the, just to have a basic diet of gospel songs written uh, in the 1800s and, and after, we're going to obliterate all of English songs written before uh, the 1700s. Now, the Wesleys were the first people to branch out with other meters. I look at number one. Um, if you count out those lines, you will get six, six, four, six, 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 four. Now the Wesleys were the first people to use other meters, and they used about 50 different meters. Now the, the, the difficulty, and there was no problem with that, the difficulty is before the Wesleys, you could match almost any text that was written in long meter with any tune that was long meter. Any common meter text you can match with any tune uh, that was common meter. And so I used to wonder when they said Watts would write a song for every sermon he preached and they would sing it after he was done preaching. I used to wonder, well, how did they know the tune? Well, they just chose a, a, a common meter or a long meter or a short meter tune that everybody knew and they could sing the words uh, because it fit. And it was the Wesleys that started the trend with different meters and then the gospel songs basically got written to one tune, and that was the only tune they fit. You could not mix and match with the gospel songs. I just thought I'd point that out for what it's worth. So if, if we're not going to uh, sing these songs that are written in these meters, and they're those short little songs that some people don't particularly care to sing, uh, all of English hymnody before 1700 will basically be obliterated from our hymnals or from our singing. So just give that for what it's worth, because the subject this afternoon We've had sing the new song, an encouragement to sing. We've had profile the new song, what kind of songs are we going to sing? And this afternoon, and this will be the last message, tomorrow morning I'll, I'll have a different uh, subject. Treasure the new song. We want to look at the heritage of Christian song. But before I do that, somebody raised a question about instrumental music. And I feel I need to say something about that because I, I, I do want our people to be thinking about that subject because sooner or later uh, that question is going to come up and uh, some churches are going to do something different from what we've done. Um, 
Alice Parker, who wrote much of the music for the Robert Shaw Chorale, which was, that was a very professional chorale, and they did use instruments for that matter, uh, very good singing. But she visited a Mennonite church for the first time in 1961, and then she published her impressions in the Gospel Herald of 1961, and I, I completely forgot to bring it along, or I would just read, read what she said. She was shocked. Here was a professional lady who had never heard good a cappella singing. She'd heard those people in Appalachia sing very ruckusly and whatever, and that was her impression of, of uh, four-part congregational singing. It was very harsh, it was very whatever. And she visited Laurelville Camp at a time when the Mennonite Church had become so liberal they would let a woman come in with cut hair to teach them music. So she came at supper time and she said, after supper, somebody just spontaneously started singing a hymn and she said, before I realized it, the whole dining hall was just filled with the most beautiful a cappella four-part singing that she'd ever heard. And she was really taken aback by that because she said, I did not think that anybody but professionals could sing that way. So she did her own analysis of what it was that allowed a group of people like us Mennonites to maintain that quality of singing. And among other things, she said that the, one of the secrets was the a cappella singing. She said, <clears throat> when you introduce an instrument, the responsibility for the sound is divided between the instrument and the congregation. And the congregation takes less responsibility, and the instrument usually gains more and more responsibility until finally the congregation depends totally on the instrument to provide most of the sound and the most of the responsibility. Now, I don't have a real scriptural argument for the use of public, against the use of public uh, instruments in public worship. Uh, I think you could make some case from the New Testament. But there's a real practical argument. I remember when the Brethren in Christ Church had four parts singing just as good as ours, if not better, and then they brought in their piano and their organ. And if you go there today, most of the people sing melody, and the organ and the piano dominate. And that just happens over and over again. And so one of the things she said is the secret to Mennonite singing is to keep it a cappella. So I'll give that for what it's worth. Okay. Treasure the New Song. This songbook was published in 2011, just seven years ago. And it has received a very enthusiastic reception among conservative Anabaptists. So I was shocked to hear there was a bookstore in a conservative Mennonite community that refused to sell this book as a matter of principle. And I thought, what in the world did I do wrong? <laughs> and so I inquired, and I found out that the owner of the bookstore was not from a Mennonite background. He was from an evangelical background. And he said, the reason he will not sell this book is because it doesn't have the old hymns in it. What did he mean? Well, to him, the old hymns were the songs they sang in his evangelical church, the old gospel songs. And that's really an irony because the gospel songs are 200 years old. And most of the songs in this hymnal are at least 300 years old, or many of them are. And so he had a wrong concept of what the old songs are. He was unaware, actually, that the recent songs of the last 200 years have replaced the old songs. And that is happening. I was at a liberal uh, Mennonite uh, supper and spontaneously they said, Brother John, you know all the old hymns by memory. Would you just get up and lead us in some, some old familiar songs? And one of the songs I tried to lead was, Jesus, thy boundless love to me. And they could not sing that song from memory. That song had already disappeared from their repertoire. That is so tragic. How easily our 4,000-year heritage of song can be lost. 
What generation could be who what generation could have regarded itself as so new that they could just sort of not focus at all on the past? Well, it probably would have been the apostolic, apostolic generation. The resurrection changed everything. There needed to be new songs because the Old Testament does not have a resurrection theme. And so if any generation could have said, we're going to write songs that are new songs and the old songs are obsolete, it could have been that generation. Yet almost every page of the New Testament makes reference to the Old Testament. In Hebrews 11, there is not one New Testament saint. That should tell us something. T. David Gordon says, when cell phones, laptops, and iPods are proved to be more important than the empty tomb, then we can ignore the past. So, let's keep our 4,000-year history of song. And one of the things we certainly don't want to forget is the Psalms. And I will say this, CCM did one thing that's good. They came back to singing a lot of scripture songs. And that, that was a good contribution that they made. And most of the tunes they're using are not too bad. I want to read you this little comment on the Psalms. David's book of Psalms is a limpid lake which reflects every mood of man's changeful sky. It is a river of consolation which, though swollen with many tears, never fails to gladden the fainting. It is a garden of flowers which never lose their fragrance, though some roses have sharp thorns. It is a stringed instrument which registers every note of praise and prayer, of triumph and trouble, of gladness and sadness, of hope and fear, and unites them all in a multicord of human experience. And that's a quote from Sidlow Baxter. And so we want to keep singing the Psalms. I, I, you know, that's part of our heritage that we don't want to forget. In fact, the interesting thing is when I was choosing the verses for the top, at the top of each song, I wanted to represent the whole Bible. But I found myself coming back again and again to the Psalms. I very frequently could not find a better verse in the whole Bible to, to capsulize the theme of the, gospel, of the gospel any better than David's Psalms. It was just amazing to me. And so if you look in the back of my scripture index, there's just Psalm after Psalm after Psalm referred to. It's really true. Uh, you know, Isaac Watts did a whole uh, series. He did the entire Psalms with the theme of the gospel. And that, you, ought, you ought to see that collection. That, that's very interesting. So, let's keep the old songs. So, what I want to do this afternoon, and this will help keep us awake, I want to look at some of the old songs and talk about them a little bit, and then we'll sing them. So, the first one I want to look at is number 202. This is a, probably the oldest hymn in the book. If you notice, it's the Liturgy of St. James. It actually is supposedly the uh, liturgy written for communion by James, the brother of our Lord. So it goes way back. I don't even have a date on it because we don't really know when this song began. How many of you know this song? Interestingly, it's, it's one of the favorite songs of our children. If we ask for a children's number in our church, they frequently give this one. <laughs> they really like this song. And uh, I didn't put it in the communion section because I'm not sure that we have the, quite the same view of communion that this song represents. If you notice, it, it says communion is going to be an actual encounter with Jesus. It's not just going to be a symbol, it's going to be an encounter with Jesus. And it pictures Jesus coming down to meet with us, and all the opposition he meets on the way. 
and all of the uh, defense that God puts up to protect him as he comes down to meet with us in the communion service. This is their view. Uh, and that's basically what the song has to say. But this is an old, old hymn. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. I just put it in a general selection of, of just basically Jesus making his appearance uh, among us. Okay, let's sing uh, verses uh, 1 and 2. Dola, let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand Christ our God to earth descendeth our full homage to demand King of kingship born of Mary as of old on earth he stood Lord of lords in human vesture in the body and the blood he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly taking these sort of in order historically, would you turn to 962? <clears throat> this song was written by Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, he was the first principal of what we would know as a Christian school. And uh, <clears throat> Most of the people coming into that school were Greeks, not Jews. They were coming from a background of, of wickedness, immorality, rebellion. Uh, well, I don't know so much rebellion, but immorality and just uh, wild and violent living. And the first title, in fact, this is not the whole song. This, uh, this is a long song of instruction. It's basically a, a catechism. And uh, the person who gave us this song just simply picked out uh, some themes and put them together from the song. Uh, the title of the song originally was, um, let me see if I can get it here, Bridal of Colts Untamed. <laughs> that was the original title. This is a wild bunch that Jesus had to subdue. And so this, I'm going to read you the first, word, uh, the first verse. Bridal of Colts Untamed, wing of unwondering birds, sure helm of ships, shepherd of royal lambs, assemble thy simple children to praise holily, to him guilelessly with innocent mouths, Christ, the guide of children. Okay? Uh, so this celebrates the blessings of being controlled by Christ. And if you look at the uh, verses, it has all kinds of names for Jesus. Shepherd, 
uh, triumphant king, holy lord, subduing word. That's, that was a, a really important uh, concept, that his word would subdue these wild cults. Healer of strife, um, great high priest, um, our guide, our staff, our song, the perennial word. It just has all kinds of, I forget how many different names uh, for Jesus and the various roles that he plays in helping to bring these wild cults under control. Uh, shepherd of tender youth. Uh, this song is very relevant to an unbridled society that we live in uh, and what Christ can do to uh, people who have no control over themselves. Let's sing verses 1 and 5. Don't be shepherd of tender youth guiding in love and truth through devious ways Christ our triumphant King we come thy name to sing hither our children bring to shout thy praise Let's sing verse 2. Thou art our holy Lord, the awesome doing word, healer of strife. Thou didst thyself abase, that from sin's deep disgrace thou mightest save our race and give us life. Now verse 5, so now until we die, sound we thy praises high and joyful sing. Infants in the glad throng who to thy church belong, unite to swell the song to Christ our King. 547. If you notice on the left-hand side, this is a song by Synesius of Cyrene. Cyrene was the seat of a Greek colony in North Africa. It was a very flourishing center of wealth and learning in AD 100, but you'll notice this song was written in 430. By A.D. 410, it had practically become a deserted city. You recall that the barbarians invaded the Roman Empire, and it came to an end in 486. Well, this was starting to happen. Synesius was the last great citizen of this city. He was a descendant of Spartan kings, the Spartan Greeks. He was a philosopher of noble character. He was a, he was a, a very, very eloquent orator, and he became converted and was chosen as the bishop of Cyrene. But at this point, all seems to be lost. His beloved wife has died. All his sons have been taken by the plague. And the whole fabric of his society was beginning to unravel. And he saw it all disintegrating before his eyes. The Western Empire was tottering to its fall in, I said, 486. It was 476. And this expresses the desire of a man who sees his whole life threatened. And he sees death and destruction all around him. And so what does a person say? in those circumstances. Well, he expresses what every Christian hopes to experience, forgiveness, control of his passions that he won't fight, 
inner purity, loyalty, quiet, quiet and sure, I'm sorry, quietness, a sure guide, and a future of light and joy. Now this song was written 1,600 years ago, but we're watching our society also disintegrate before our eyes. And this song is very relevant, the kind of thoughts we should have about the situation that we're in. Lord Jesus, think on me. This is a very rare song because the Greek songs, almost none of them talked about uh, personal experience. The Greek songs are all about uh, celebration of God, uh, Christ, the Holy Spirit, all glory, laud, and honor. That's a typical Greek song. Uh, the, the personal songs came later. Even Isaac Watts wrote almost no personal songs. When I surveyed the wondrous cross is the nearest thing he came to it. His, his songs are all a celebration of God's sovereignty and the greatness of God and his control over, over his creation. And that was also true of the Greek song, celebrating the resurrection, celebrating the person of Christ, celebrating the work of the Holy Spirit, celebrating the Trinity. Uh, the idea of writing songs from personal experience, even though David did it, but his, his uh, focus finally always was on God, it didn't end with personal experience. That came later, so this is, sort, this is sort of unique, but it was because of this man's circumstances. So let's, let's sing all of the verses here so we get the entire prayer of this man living in a disintegrating society that was about to completely collapse. Doso, Lord Jesus, think on me and purge away my sin. From earthborn blessed set me free and make me pure within. Lord Jesus, think on me with many a care oppressed. Let me thy living servant be and taste thy promised rest. Lord Jesus, think on me, nor let me go astray through darkness and perplexity. Point thou the heavenly way. Lord Jesus, think on me. When flows the tempest high, when on doth rust the enemy, O Savior, be thou nigh. Lord Jesus, think on me when, when the flood is past, I may the eternal brightness see and share thy joy at last. Number five. Ambrose of Milan was a very colorful character. He was uh, a pleader of courts in the city of Milan. He was not a Christian, well, he was a Christian at the time of the incident I'm telling you about. At least he was in the instruction class. He had not been baptized. When a tremendous controversy broke out in the city of Milan, because you had the first heresy in the Christian church was the Arian heresy that Jesus was, not, it was against the Trinity. It was the JW idea that Jesus is the highest and first of God's creation. 
and uh, the bishop had been a heretic Arian, and he died. And the Orthodox, who believed in the Trinity, were hoping to elect an Orthodox bishop. And so they met in the square to have this election, and there was going to be a huge conflict breakout. And uh, Ambrose, although he was not a church leader, he was basically the governor of the, of the city. Uh, he rushed down to the square and uh, settled this whole thing down. And in the middle of the, uh, the whole thing, some child uh, said, Ambrose for bishop. Well, he wasn't even a baptized member of the church, so he ran off into hiding. And they brought him back, somebody found him and brought him back, and he finally was baptized, brought into the church, and became a bishop in the church. Uh, it was <laughs> he was an amazing person. He gave up all his wealth, he gave up everything, and put his whole heart into being bishop of the church in Milan. Last summer, I had the opportunity of visiting that cathedral where Ambrose preached. But the reason I put him in this book is because Ambrose was the first person to take the plain song and give it a little bit of a meter and give us what we know today as a melody. Augustine said that before Ambrose, singing was more of a chant than it was a song. And he's the one that gave us the Ambrosian chant, which was basically a melody. And so uh, he began to compose hymns because the Arians were composing hymns with their heresy and winning many people to their faith because of their hymns. And Ambrose said, we need hymns on the other side. So he combated Arianism with songs about the Trinity and about the Orthodox faith. So here we are. We're not going to sing much of this. Uh, o splendor of God's glory bright, from light eternal bringing light, thou light of life, life's, life's, light's living spring, true day, all days, illumining. And I like these words. Come very sun of heaven's love in lasting radiance from above and pour the Holy Spirit's ray on all we think or do today. Confirm our will to do the right and keep our hearts from envy's blight. Let faith her eager fires renew and hate the false and love the true. And uh, let, why don't we sing just that third verse? No soul, confirm our will to do the right and keep our hearts from envy's blight. And let faith her eager fires renew and hate the false and love the true. Number 237. <clears throat> Those were some of the original Greek hymns. Uh, the Greek hymns are always good because, like I said, they're, they're pure praise. They're not about personal experience usually. Now we come to the Thirty-Year War. The Thirty-Year War was fought between the Roman Catholics from 1618 to 1648. And this was when the Roman Catholics and the Protestants finally fought it out. And they fought for 30 years, and neither side had won. So they decided to sit down at Westphalia and, bring, uh, and write the Peace of Westphalia. What they did was they divided Europe up and decided who, which countries the Catholics would have and which countries the Protestants would have. And so you had to be whatever was decided. Well, people like John Amos Comenius, who was a Moravian, found that Moravia was given to the Catholics. So he had to flee. And there was just an awful lot of horrible things happened during that time. And some wonderful hymns came out of this period. And that's why I'm telling you this. This hymn was written during that time. You notice that the writer is Johann Hermann. His mother lost four of her five children in this horrible war. 
I mean, some cities were taken by the Catholics, then they were taken by the Protestants, then they were taken by the Catholics, then they were taken by the Protestants. Some cities changed hands between these two uh, opponents seven or eight times, and every time their city was devastated by whatever army was fighting uh, and won. So she lost four of her five children during that time. And she vowed to God that if he would spare one of her boys, she would educate him for the ministry if she had to beg for a living. And Johann was spared. And she gave him the best training she could give him, the best education. He became a pastor, but he soon had such trouble with his eyes and his throat that he had to stop preaching. He was a victim of the Thirty Year War. His village was plundered four times by the Catholics. Devastated by fire and ravaged by pestilence, he lost all of his property and he was in constant danger of the sword and bullet. He found his consolation in his poetry and his experience heightened his sensitivity to the horrible injustice that was done to Jesus. And so he personalized his own injustice and used it to express what he saw we had done to Christ, the same kind of horrible injustice that he had suffered and suffered and suffered, he saw that's what the human race had done to Jesus. And so he writes this wonderful hymn. How many know this one? Oh, holy Jesus, what did you do to cause people to treat you this way? Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow and thy life's oblation, the death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee. Think on my, thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. Let's sing verses 1 and 4. Dola. Oh, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that man to judge thee? Hath in hate pretended by foes derided? By thine own rejected, O most afflicted. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee. And will ever pray thee, think on thy pity and thy unswerving, not my deserving. Six hundred ninety. Another person who was devastated by the Thirty-Year War was Martin Rinkert. His city of Eilenburg was one of the few walled cities 
So when people were in danger, they fled to the city till it was overcrowded and pestilence broke out and many people died. And almost all the pastors fled the city, but Mark and Rinkert stayed to conduct the funerals. He buried 4,480 people. He was the only minister in the city. As many as 30 people a day over this 30-year period he buried, including his wife. The city was besieged three times, once by the Austrians, twice by the Swedes, and a high ransom was at one point demanded, which they could not pay. And he said to the people, let's kneel and ask God for mercy. There is no mercy from man. And he prayed such a moving prayer that the person who was demanding the ransom uh, took the ransom down to the point where they could finally pay it. Now, what kind of hymn would you write for the people to sing in a church with the roof blown off and the whole city devastated and thousands of people dead? What kind of a song would you write? Well, the interesting thing about this song is it's a song of thanksgiving. There isn't even an indication in this song that there was any problem. He's thanking God for his blessings. The only, thing, the only reference in this song to the horrible experience that he had been through is in that third, second stanza of the third score where it says, and keep us in thy grace and guide us when perplexed. Well, I guess. <laughs> this is tremendous. This man's attitude with all the death and destruction and his family destroyed and his city destroyed and, and it just was an awful experience. But here he writes this song, now thank we all our God that we're still alive and we still have many blessings we're taking for granted. Let's sing um, verses 1 and 2. No me so, now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voice. Says who wondrous things that none in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ill in this world and the next. Number four, 572. Paul Gerhardt was a Lutheran who wanted to be a pastor, and he'd studied to be a pastor, but his, he wanted to be a pastor, but his, his education was postponed till the end of this war. He also wanted to get married, but his marriage was postponed till the end of this war. By then he was 45 years old, and he finally married the love of his life, and he finally was given the pastorate of a, of a church, and was parting, starting to have some success, 
But because of the tremendous controversy theologically, he had to disagree with a few things that the Lutheran Church were requiring him to state that he believed, and so he was deposed from his ministry. Again, he had seen tremendous suffering and then finally injustice at the hands of his own church. And so he turned totally away from, from a theological approach to Christianity. And he focused entirely on one's experience with the love of Jesus and with salvation without all that theological static that was being created around him. And just wrote this beautiful hymn, Jesus, thy boundless love to me. Now this is not the only uh, story connected with this. John Wesley was sent to Georgia where uh, Oglethorpe was establishing a colony for uh, people in debtor's prison, bringing them from England to this new colony. And John Wesley was sent here to be a missionary and a pastor to these ex-prisoners. Now John Wesley was an idealist, and he had very, very strong ideas about Christian perfection and holiness. And the people rejected him. Uh, they did not accept his message. It was too idealistic for them, I guess. And uh, it finally came to a head in some lady who was not living up to the standard he thought she should, and he refused to let her be a part of his church, and there was a lawsuit against him, and before he finally was indicted and cast into prison, he escaped and went back to England, uh, totally defeated as a missionary. But on the ship, he heard the Moravians, who had picked up these German songs written by people like Gerhardt. And this song ministered so much to him that when he got back to England, he went to a Moravian meeting, and there's where his heart was warmed, and there's where his ministry really began as a result of these wonderful songs written by these people whose focus was on their devotion to Christ rather than theological argument. And uh, so we know the song and I don't think we're gonna sing it because I wanna hasten on. Would we turn to number 118? I'm tempted to sing it because it's one of my favorite songs. 118. <clears throat> I'm just trying to give you little snippets of history behind some of this music. It's, it's, we, we, just, we enjoy these songs, but we have no idea <laughs> the depth of what they really are saying and on the basis of what these people experience. John Greenleaf Whittier was a Quaker. He was one of the abolitionists, totally opposed to slavery. But in the 18, late 1800s, I told you the revivals where you had the revival meetings taking place. He was a Quaker who didn't believe that you said anything unless God moved you to say it. But he went to a, 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 one of the revivals that got completely out of hand with people shouting and running up and down the aisles and carrying on. And he went home and he wrote this poem. This is only the last part of the poem. It was a poem called The Brewing of the Soma. He went way back into Hindu, Hindu history to where they took the soma plant and they fermented it and they got a drug from it and they took that drug and that was part of their religion that that drug elevated them to where they thought they made contact with God. And we can laugh at them, but the whole way down through the poem he says every age has striven to have some gimmick to get them closer to God. And he thought that that's what the revival meetings were doing with all their hyped up emotionalism. It was the same thing. That's what he says in his poem. And then he ends the poem by saying, Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful minds, in pure lives. That's where it is. Thy service fine, in deeper reverence praise. Let's shut up and live it. <laughs> That's what he's saying. In simple trust like theirs who heard beside the Syrian sea, the gracious calling of our Lord, let us like them without a word 
rise up and follow thee. And when you know this was written by a Quaker and the circumstances under which it was written, this is rich. O Sabbath rest by Galilee, O calm of hills above, where Jesus knelt to share with thee the silence of eternity interpreted by love. Silence of eternity. With that deep hush subduing all our words and works that drown the tender whisper of thy call. As noiseless let thy blessing fall as fell the manna down. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. And then let's sing the last verse. Dos o mi, breathe through the heats of our desire, thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire, speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, oh still. Small voice of calm, amen. If you want to get the whole poem, you can write this down. The title of it is The Brewing of the Psalm. If you Google that, the whole poem will come up and you can read it. It's a very interesting poem to read. All right, number 514. George Matheson. Anybody know anything about this man? He was blind. This song reflects the amazing experience of a severely handicapped Christian. George Matheson was born with poor eyesight. His eyes were very weak, but he aspired to be a preacher, so he went to the University of Edinburgh. But as he studied, his eyes got worse and worse and worse until he realized he was going to be blind. Now, he was engaged to a very lovely girl, and when she found out that her husband was going to be blind, she broke off the engagement and he never married. But this was a deep sorrow in his heart. He became an eloquent, outstanding, blind preacher of Edinburgh. On the day of his sister's wedding, this song was written because it brought back all the bitter memories of that broken relationship with his fiancée. And so after the wedding, when the family went to celebrate in the evening, he stayed home. So sad he could not join the, the celebration. But while he was at home by himself, he testified that his suffering was transferred, transformed into a miraculous release of trust in God in his situation. And I'm going to read his exact words about the writing of this hymn. My hymn was composed in the manse of Anellan on the evening of June the 6th, 1882. I was at that time alone. It was the day of my sister's marriage and the rest of my family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something had happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression rather of having it dictated to me by some inward voice than of working it out myself. I'm quite sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes and equally sure that it never received at my hand any retouching or correction. In other words, we have it just as he wrote it in five minutes. I have no natural gift for rhythm. All the other verses that I have written, and I have another one in my hymnal, were manufactured articles. This came like a day spring from on high. 
I have never been able to gain once more the same fervor in verse as I expressed here. Now this is an amazing uh, hymn. Oh love, uh, it was love that was his problem. But he's thinking of the love of Christ to him. Oh love that will let, not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may, flow may richer, fuller be. So he's picturing a rushing little troubled stream that finally flows into the ocean that's deep and wide, much deeper and wider than his little troubled stream. Then he says, O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee, perhaps a torch that had been lighted with a magnifying glass from the sun. And he says, I'm just going to give that light back to the sun. My heart restores its borrowed ray that in thy sunshine's glow its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, a symbol of life, a symbol of passion, a symbol of hope, life that shall endless be. Just a tremendous piece of poetry with very, very graphic language. Let's sing the last verse. No soul, O cross, that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall Endless be. 165. George A. Young was a very poor pastor, gave his whole life to the service of the church, but he and his wife had a dream that someday they could build their own little house. So they scrimped and saved all their lives, and finally, at the end of their life, they were able to build a modest little house that they could call their own. Not long after they built their little house, he was called away to some meeting somewhere, and when he and his wife returned, there was nothing there but a pile of ashes. It was determined that some person who did not like George Young had actually burnt the house down. What was his response? Here goes all his life savings, and there'll never be another house. In fact, when he died, his wife ended up in the poorhouse. And Al Smith visited her in the poorhouse. The lady had nothing. He said he never met a happier person in his life. That was the attitude of the youngs toward the, the situations in life that they faced. And so he writes this song as a response to that loss. Some through the water, some through the flood, all through the fire. I'm sorry, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. <laughs> Just such a tremendous testimony of people who go through, we go through difficulties, but do we have this attitude? Do we have the attitude of uh, uh, Martin Rinker? Now thank we all our God for the blessings we do have. It's such a challenge. Okay, let's sing uh, verse three. No, when sorrows befall us and Satan oppose, God leads his dear children along. 
Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. Number. Hmm. Uh, just a second here. I don't have the number down. It is. 778. I'm trying to help you treasure the heritage that we have. William Voorhees was not an Anabaptist. I don't know what his denomination was. But whatever, I think it was Presbyterian. And he became a, a lover of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he felt called to go to China. I'm sorry, Japan. He felt a call to go to Japan and be a school teacher there and spend his time basically trying to promote Christianity in Japan. He fell in love with Japan. He learned the Japanese language, became a citizen, married a Japanese woman. And then the war broke out between his adopted country and his native country. And this caused him tremendous sorrow. But he had been so adamant on the subject of non-resistance, he really believed in it. It's amazing. He was not taught non-resistance. He did not come from a non-resistant church. But he believed very firmly in the Sermon on the Mount that it should be obeyed, including the teaching on non-resistance. And so he stayed through the war. And at the end of the war, he had won himself so much recognition for the life that he lived and his love for the Japanese people and the purity of his gospel message that he was invited by Japan and the United States to help negotiate the peace between the two countries. And he had a great hand in the peace between Japan and the United States. Instead of the United States taking it out on Japan, he helped with them to, to help them to reconcile their differences and bring a peaceful conclusion to that battle. Now, this song was written long before World War II. This is his testimony, 1908. Let there be light, Lord God of hosts. Let there be wisdom on the earth. Let broad humanity have birth. Let there be deeds instead of boasts. Let's sing verses 2, 3, and 4. Know me within our passion, hearts instill the calm that endeth strain and strife. Make us thy ministers of life. Purge us from lust that curse and kill. Give us the peace of vision clear to see our brothers good, our own, to joy and suffer not alone. The love that casteth out all fear. Let woe and waste of warfare cease. That useful labor yet may build its homes with love and virtue filled. God give thy wayward children peace. 
589. Brother Elvin, are you familiar with Christian Burkholder? I would have thought you would have heard of him in, your, in the circles you grew up in. Christian Burkholder's father was one of the Bernese Anabaptists who visualized and helped to plan a new community in the new world, but he died before they migrated. So his brave widow emigrated with her six children in 1755. Christian was a little nine-year-old and he was the oldest of the children. He grew up during the French and Indian War, which was a horrible time. In 1770, he was ordained. He was chosen to be a bishop of the Mennonite Church in Lancaster in 1780. This man traveled tirelessly to build up the church. But in 1790, the first German Methodist revival hit the United States. Jacob Albright was the evangelistic association preacher in this revival. He was a very dramatic, very charismatic person, and the Mennonites had never heard preaching like this before. He preached the gospel of Christ's conversion. He preached the gospel of the second work of grace and sinless perfection. And many Mennonites began to move in that direction toward him. Christian Burkholder saw this with great dismay. So he published a book called, uh, let's see if I have this here. Yes, Address to Youth Regarding True Repentance. Uh, the Old Order Mennonites still keep this in print if you ever want to read it. It's just a short little treatise. It talks about genuine repentance, genuine conversion, not uh, an emotional upheaval in one's life. And Martin Christian Burkholder said, the proof that you're a Christian does not mean that you had a dramatic, emotionally defining experience. The proof that you're a Christian is something that came into your life that you sense is changing pride to humility, incontinence to chastity, hatred to love, covetousness to liberality, and lying to honesty. He said, the proof that you're a Christian is you sense those changes taking place in you. Not that you had an emotionally defining experience like the German revivalists were calling people to. And he said, humility was the outstanding evidence of the new birth, a distrust in oneself and a trust in God to do the work in one's life. And so he writes this song. It's the only song he wrote. I took it out of his writings. Uh, you notice he, he, he mentioned some things here. Verse 2, giving him our heart's affection, true and upright we should be. This way leads us to perfection, not a second work of grace. Leads to God with certainty. May I ever till life closes to my master faith will be. Nevermore with unhoned conscience insincerity display. May I never shrink from waver, nor waver from the words of Christ so true. Unto righteousness they lead us, granting us salvation too. All my speech, my deeds, my thinking, I to him completely give, to his will now fully yielding all my being as I live. Love of God continue burning, penetrating mind and heart. May your presence strong, constraining, light eternal now impart. He was able to convince many to remain with the Mennonite church. The ones who left, you know where they are today? I guess you folks don't have the United Brethren here, do you? It was basically a Pennsylvania thing. Well, it's a worldly denomination. And many of the people in that church were formerly part of this dead church that the German revivalists were trying to revive. It's a lesson. It's a lesson to be learned. Okay. Uh, let's sing verses 1 and 2. No soul. This is one of my favorite tunes. Do you know it? Does anybody know this tune? 
well, you probably don't know what until we sing it. No, so Christ is full of love and power, full of glory, light and grace. He refreshes those whose sorrow fills their hearts with joy and peace. Giving him our heart's affection, true and upright we should be. This way leads us to perfection, leads to God with certainty. May I ever till life closes to my master faithful stay. Never more with unhoned conscience in sincerity display. I'm way over time. Let, let me just do a couple more. <laughs> Number 585. <laughs> well, you folks have other things you want to do this afternoon. Uh, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Something like that, where, where you just chant along. And, in fact, it's actually more, that was more of a melody. 585. I didn't put any of them in my book. I should have. Christopher Blackhall, a Baptist pastor from Pittsburgh, visited the uh, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. How many have ever been in that cave? I never have been. Oh, really? They say it has, what, 500 miles of unexplored passageways? And if you notice the date, 1871, this was before electricity. The only way to get in that cave and out safely was to follow the man with the lantern. If you got away from him and lost sight of the lantern, you were a dead person. And so on the train on the way home, Christopher Blackall reflected on this. He thought, well, that's a pretty good picture of the Christian life. Follow the path of Jesus, walk where his footsteps leave, keep in his beaming presence. That's that old lantern he's thinking about. And how do you do that? You do it by heeding every counsel. That's how you keep in his beaming presence. Watch, okay? Cling to the hand of Jesus. You really want to get out of that cave. <laughs> Don't just follow the lantern, but get a hold of the master's hand. And uh, I don't know, the Mennonites picked this up and put it in their first hymnal that had m music in it, but only the first two verses. And then I think somebody looked at it and they said, you know what, that's a pretty good Anabaptist hymn, but it needs one more verse. Take up the cross of Jesus. <laughs> Sharing the shame he bore, self and the world denying. Here comes the Anabaptism. Love the Savior more. Tell all the world. See, here we have the evangelism of Jesus. Think of their gloom and loss. Tell of his great salvation and glory in his cross. It's probably the most Anabaptist hymn in the hymnal, written by a Baptist. Uh, let's sing verse 2. No, cling to the hand of Jesus All through the day and night Dark though the path and dreary He will guide you right Live for the good of others Helpless, oppressed, and wrong, lift them from depths of sorrow. In His strength, be strong. Eight hundred five. <clears throat> Mary A. Baker was faced with a tremendous disease 
in her family that caused the death of her father and her mother. And I don't know how many brothers and sisters she has had, but once it was over, the only ones in the family that were left were Mary and her brother. And her brother was deathly sick from the disease, whatever it was. So he went off to the West, hoping to find uh, health in the West. And their uh, co correspondence went back and forth for a while, and finally he died, and she was left without any family. And she became extremely depressed and uh, went through some years of tremendous sorrow and depression because of that. And finally she pulled herself out of that, and somebody asked her to write her experience. So she chose uh, the experience of the disciples on the water with Jesus in the storm as the metaphor to describe her experience. Notice verse 2, Master with anguish of spirit, I bow in my grief today. The depths of my sad heart are troubled. Awaken and save, I pray. Torrents of sin and of anguish sweep o'er my sinking soul, and I perish, I perish, dear Master. Oh, hasten and take control. That's right out of her experience. Master, the terror is over. The elements sweetly rest. Earth's sun in the calm lake are mirrored, is mirrored, and the heavens within my breast. Linger, O blessed Redeemer. Leave me alone no more, and with joy I shall make the blessed harbor and rest on the blissful shore. Now that song would have probably never been popular, uh, it never would have gotten into the hymnals, but there was another incident. When James Garfield was shot and died, somebody picked up this song, and this song was sung throughout this nation during that experience, and that's what popularized it and brought it into our hymnals. Just a wonderful song, Master the Tempest is Raging. Let's sing the first verse. Oh soul, master, the tempest is raging, the billows are tossing high. The sky is o'ershadowed with blackness, no shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep? When each moment so madly is threatening, a grave in the angry deep, softly, the winds and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace, be still. Now build it up. Whether the wrath of the storm tossed sea, or demons or men or whatever it be, no water can swallow the ship. Sing it. The master of ocean and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace be still, peace be still. They all shall sweetly obey my will. Peace, peace, be still. 684. Robert Murray McChain. Does anybody recognize the name? Can you give us his famous quote? I'm sure that he said that. This young man who was dead at the age of 29 had preached his heart out and a revival in Dundee, England was the result. But the quote that I'm thinking of is the one where he never married. The quote I'm thinking of is the one where he said, I don't know any man on this earth as well as I know Jesus Christ. That is quite a statement. I know. Isn't he the one that 
It could be another story of him was he was on his way to a meeting and he decided to go into the woods to pray and he got so involved in his prayer he was there for hours. They were at the meeting and he wasn't there. And they went to look for him and they found him on his knees in the forest and he had completely lost track of time. But his quote is, I know of no person on this earth as well as I, I know no person on this earth as well as I know Jesus. So, let's sing just one verse. Oh, when this passing world is done, when has sunk yon radiant sun, when I stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. 577. William R. Featherstone, a 15-year-old boy, wrote this text on the eve of his conversion. This is the testimony of a 15-year-old boy on the eve of his conversion. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. Let's sing verse 3. Oh, I will love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath, and say when the death to lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Two more, and I will let you go. 906. My purpose this afternoon is to focus us on the full range of Christian song throughout all of church history. I just picked out a few. So Send I You was written by Margaret Clarkson, and most of you probably think you know this song, but this is not the text that you learned to sing, nor is it the tune. The text that you know, So Send I You to Labor Unrewarded, was written by her when she was sent after her graduation from Teachers College in Ontario and there was no school in the area for her to teach. They sent her north to a lumber camp and there she taught these, the children of those lumberjacks and they were an ungodly bunch. I don't know if there was any other Christian there except this woman. And she became extremely discouraged and she wrote that other poem, which I never liked because it is so depressing. Uh, the fact that everybody liked it made me wonder what their attitude or problem was in life. But anyway, at the end of her life, she looked at that poem and she said, that's not a true picture of Christianity, it's too, it's too negative, it's too defeatist. So she wrote this song to be sung to the same tune, and you can sing it to that other tune. It has a much better picture of what it means to be a Christian and serve God. I never liked the other tune either, I never liked the song, so I, this tune I like a lot better. So <laughs> it's a different tune and it's a different set of text than what you're used to. But I really like this. So send I you by grace made strong to triumph or hosts of hell, or darkness, death, and sin. My name to bear, and in that name to conquer, so send I you my victory to win. How many know this song? Oh, you don't know it. It's a beautiful tune. Let's sing it. Verse 2. <clears throat> oh, so send I you to take to souls in bondage 
the word of truth that sets the captive free to break the bonds of sin to loose as fetters so send I you to bring the lost to me so send I you my strength to know in weakness my joy in grief my perfect peace in pain to prove my power my grace my promise presence so send I you eternal fruit to gain so send I you to bear my cross with patience and then one day with joy to lay it down to hear my voice well done my faithful servant come share my throne my kingdom and my crown as the Father has sent me, so send I you. One more. A song that has long been my favorite. One of my <laughs> I keep saying that. I must have a hundred favorites. Eight hundred and ninety-four. Charles Wesley was inspired to write this when he read Matthew Henry's comment on Leviticus 8.35, which is Moses' charge to the priests. This is what Moses said. Therefore shall ye abide at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation day and night seven days and keep the charge of the Lord that you die not. Matthew Henry said this. We shall every one of us have a charge to keep an eternal God to glorify, an immortal soul to provide for, and one generation to serve. And that was the inspiration for this song. It has much of that same wording in it. On verse 3, I would like for, the, and this will be our closing song. On verse 3, I would like for the tenors to sing the melody, the soprano to sing the high tenor, and the altos and basses to sing your regular parts. So tenors, take your lead on verse 3. And on verse 4, sing as many parts as you want to sing. Some of you keep singing your high tenor, some of you tenors keep singing the melody. But yes, a charge to keep I have. So a charge to keep I have A God to glorify A never-dying soul to save And fitted for the sky to serve the present age my calling to fulfill oh may it all my powers engage to do my 
Masters will tenor take the lead. Army with has in thy sight to live and all my servant Lord prepare a strength to give many parts help me to watch and pray and on thyself rely assured if I my trust betray, I shall forever die. Well, I hope this last session has helped you to see there's much to preserve. <laughs> a wonderful hymnody. Uh, to me, this is a 6,000-year is a gift. Not just this hymnal, but the kind of songs that we've been singing. And let's not let a few people who want to replace all of those with something written just recently, usually much, more, much less depth than this. Uh, let's keep the good old hymns.